Hi, welcome back to Get Mad with yours truly, Chris. I am Chris Graves, and uh, my returning guest is is Chris Emery of Free Mind Films, the company behind such documentaries as A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, and Shadow Ring, and also State of Mind, Psychology of Control. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you, uh, Chris. I appreciate the invite and um, hope things are well with you and your family. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, and the same to you as well. Thank you. So I wanted to just uh, return to our discussion on A Noble Lie for a little. I'm going to try to cover all three of the films I just mentioned uh, in this hour. So okay. uh, I w- wanted to return to uh, A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City. Um did you get to have um, contact with a woman named Jane Graham from from the? Oh yes, Jane. Okay. Was, Jane uh, was one of the first that I had met uh, early on, even before I moved to Oklahoma City. This would have been in uh, 2001, actually. I didn't actually move there till January of '03. But uh, if I may, let me just—I'm going to go off scripture for just a moment. Sure. I want sure. to do a, a great shout out, and you know, you, you got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, a film colleague—I've never met him in person, but Mickey Willis did a phenomenal job on the pandemic, and I want to—I want to give a plug to his films. Uh, Mickey did a great job um, on the pandemic series. I just finished watching the third one, which I believe was released. They had the uh, the premiere in Austin. And the InfoWars crew and the, and the whole entourage there, I, I believe over 2,000 people showed up for that. Um, and uh, Mickey and, and his entire crew, I was I was reading the end credits last night, did a phenomenal job. They knocked it out of the park, and they featured it, I believe, over half of the film. G. Edward Griffin, who we were very blessed to have in our second and third film, in State of Mind, Psychology of Control, as well as Shadow Ring. And I, I left, um, actually, a, a message on uh Edward Griffin secretary's phone this morning, just giving them a two thumbs up. So people, if you have a moment, just log on to pandemic, uh, movie.com. And then there's all three on there. Please give this filmmaker your support. Um, a, a phenomenal piece of work. And I, I don't say that lightly. I've been very blessed to be in this industry for over 43 years working in front of and behind the camera and Mickey and his crew just knocked it out of the park. They knocked it out of the stratosphere. Very well done piece of work, and um, again, uh, just to, just to what he did was he phenomenal. It is great. Just uh, real quick, and I'll wrap this up. He took the archive footage of Edward Griffin from the late 1960s and colorized it, and then ended up blending in and morphing that image to Edward Griffin. It looked like uh, it was shot. The interview was probably about maybe nine or ten months ago. And um, it brought literally from the 1960s to G. Edward Griffin to present day, uh, just an amazing piece of work just on that. And, and then the whole the whole premise and the script of the film. So anyway, I wanted to put that out there. 
you got to give credit where credit is due. And Mickey and his family, uh, uh, two beautiful sons, great wife. Um, so keep up the great work, Mickey, if, if you happen to hear this. And uh, just uh, proud to be a fellow filmmaker like yourself. Oh, that's well, that's fantastic. No, that's great. And, uh, yeah, he does do very good work. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, gave that shout out. Um, cause, uh, yeah, we, you have to. And it's a lot of a lot of effort and his crew did a great job. And I, I know from experience what these guys go through behind the scenes and it's a, it's a thankless job sometimes. So anyway, let's um, but I wanted to get that out there and make sure that we kind of hit that. Hot oh, first, absolutely. Uh, first part of the so. Um, yes, uh, Jane Graham uh, and I were very blessed. I believe I met her for the first time in August of 2001, and I've been to her house many times. And uh, she's like a uh, just like so many people we interviewed in the film, or almost extended family. Uh, so, yes, uh, she's a great individual. Well, actually, now that you mentioned mentioned that it was in August of 2001, just offhand, um, just out of curiosity. Did you ever get her take on the 9-11 attacks? Oh, yeah. She she knows that it was, uh, okay. um, you know, it was a stage deal. And Just because she saw some curious things. Yeah, I'm, the only reason I bring that up is because she herself had saw some very curious activity in the Murrah building yeah. right before. So that's the only reason I ask that. Exactly. Oh, yeah. We've we've talked many times about nine eleven, and uh, she, you know, it's it's really it's sad, and you know, twenty twenty uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. But if people would have paid attention to Oklahoma City and, and put the clamp down, and even General Parton, you know, uh, God rest his soul, he's since passed on, but he said that uh, the Patriot Act didn't have to be passed after nine eleven. That was all. It was, you know, the, the, that that was a whole timeline that was planned years in advance. They just decided to take it off the shelf and greenlight it, and uh, beginning in the middle of begin to the middle and the end of, of 2001. Um, and uh, Jane says, if people would have paid attention to Oklahoma City, there's a good chance that 9/11 could have been curtailed. But that's neither here nor there, I guess. But um, you know, we we've you know, I'd have to agree. Commiserated and yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah, I have to. Uh, so I, I think it's, in fact, I was back there in 2018, in April of 18, at a book signing um, in Oklahoma City. And that was the last time I saw Jane. She was kind enough to come to the event. And uh, it was a big reception that we had at a local hotel. And it was good to see her. Um, she was like, a, you know, an extended, like a almost a grandmotherly figure. Just very smart. Um and didn't take any garbage from anybody and would, would call you out on your BS in a very tactful way. She wasn't inappropriate or nasty or anything like that, but uh, she was nobody's fool. And um, told me that in Chicago, she actually went to high school, get this, with Jimmy Hoffa's daughter. <laughs> and she, oh, she wow. ran in that circle where, oh, yeah, yeah, she ran in that circle where there were a lot of woke, awake people back then, not woke, but awake. They they could tell that something was going on, you know, the undercurrent and the, the rift with the government even back then. And then she was a um, one of the union, wasn't the union steward, but a, a, one of the higher ups at the uh, the HUD office, uh, union office in, uh, in, in the Murr building. And she stood up for a lot of the fellow employees and made sure that you know, the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and everybody got a fair shake on what was going on in the HUD operation at the Murr building. So 
Um, anyway, very. Uh, by the way, we had a screening of our film before it was, uh, maybe it was, it was right after we released it. I remember because it came out December 4, 2011, the Oklahoma City film. And I was very honored to um, uh, have a screening at her house leading up it was between that time and Christmas. And she had a house full of people. It was it was very humbling. She had the food laid out, just a, a nice buffet laid out and everything, and just welcomed us, um, our film crew in there with open arms. And uh, we were very, very humbled by that, uh, for her to do that. So, Well, for, for <clears throat> the listeners that are not aware of uh, Jane, Jane Graham, what did she observe that was pretty much damning to the official story of Oklahoma City? Well, if if you remember now, okay, so the bombing happens on April 19, 1995. That's on a Wednesday. So we rewind the clock. You're going to go back to that previous Sunday, which was Easter Sunday that year. So you go back two, two three more days. The I believe it was the Thursday before that Easter Sunday. She was in the cafeteria in one of the lower levels of the, uh, the Murrah building. If it wasn't the ground level, probably the second floor. And she saw... Uh, and overheard a, a, a conversation by somebody in uh, a booth not too far from uh, where she was sitting uh, about that there was going to be something happening the following week and precautions and measures were being taken to make sure that, uh, as we know, April 19 was, was considered Patriots Day. Uh, two years previously, it was the attack on Waco, and then it's normally, uh, in fact, it goes all the way back to, I guess, the Revolutionary War. So that day is kind of uh, burned in infamy, as they say. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then uh, it's, I believe that the following day, she was down in the garage. And we didn't discover this until we saw the blueprints. I was able to get access to a, just a small number of, of the, uh, uh, the 64 pages of blueprints of the building through a source that we had at the GSA office in Fort Worth, Texas. And I noticed that there were if I'm not mistaken, at least three or four levels of parking below where the Murrah building stood, which you saw in the newsreels was which actually above elevation, above yeah. ground. Well, there was uh, four levels of parking, and then some of that was used by the the judges and the secretaries and the paralegals. And then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the transfer service with the U.S. Marshal's office and the county jail for prisoners that were going to be remanded in the hearings at the federal courthouse, which was across the street and to the south of where the mayor building stood, some of those levels of the parking were used to uh, use the, the prisoner transfer so they could get in safely without you know, being exposed to the general public. Uh, and then they would be showing up in uh, the courtroom if need be without, you know, if they didn't have access to video monitoring hearings, they would have to show up in person. Part of those, the elevation of those parking we used for that. Anyway, she was down about on the second or third level below ground and saw an individual who was later looked identical, uh, would have been a stunt double, or if not, in fact, Andrea Strassmeyer. Yes. And that's a whole other conversation by the time who he was. And uh, she said at least three or four other individuals with him handling materials what looked like C4 and uh, there was was certain wires and so forth that uh, they were surmising what was going to be done and possibly putting at at least what she in retrospect thought was mounting some of these devices or what it would take to mount some of them to the support columns in the garage. 
come to find out there was no damage to the actual garage level other than the debris that fell down on it. But there was no uh, structural damage to the, the pillars down there. So, um, but yeah, that's what she saw. And, and then she started basically putting the pieces of the puzzle together after the bombing saying, Hey, you know, I saw this, this person. And yeah, she well, to, what, uh, what looked like a uh, gray butter, right? Sticks of butter, almost like, right. like yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. So, uh, cordite and, and so forth and, yeah, uh, the different uh, components of how you would. Uh, she she never changed her her story ever. So even out under no, pressure. No, yeah. no, exactly. Um, kind of a I don't know if, if there's any humor in this, uh, dark humor or whatever. But we ran across several of these instances in the eight and a half years we worked on the film. But I remember I was over at her house. This is probably a year after I met her. And she walked me through, got to the point where her daughter would be out shopping or the cleaning service would be there at the house. They'd leave and lock up. And then Jane would be out either coming home from work or out doing grocery shopping, come back and discover that somebody just made their way in, in their house and was having their way, you know, just looking through stuff and opening desk drawers. It got to the point that she knew that somebody had access to her house when nobody was there. So she got one of these rolling chalkboards from an office supply store in town um, and basically wrote on the chalkboard. He says, Hey, take whatever you want. My valuables are locked up. Just don't mess <laughs> up the doors. Don't break my window and don't soil the carpet. You know? I, yeah. Just, I just vacuumed. Damn it. <laughs> table. Hey, yeah. And it was, it was kind of comical in a way. It was kind of dark humor, but again, she didn't put up with her garbage. She says, look, if you're going to F with my house, the least you could do is respect the fact. Don't, don't be tracking, you know, it was horrible. <laughs> they, they were ruining her uh, upholstery. And anyway, so they did the same thing. The to, they did the same exact thing with Terrence Eakey's, uh widow or ex-wife, rather, uh, T- uh, Tonya. Tonya yes. Eakey too, kept breaking yeah. and entering. Yep. yep. And stealing things and uh, getting in the vehicle. So, um, I mean, just uh, it's between her and Don Browning and Beasley Lott and the members of the Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee. In fact, I just was literally calling one of them. Can you believe he's 91 years old, one of the, the members of the bombing committee? And I met this guy for the first time, and it would have been in February 2003. So we're talking over 20 years ago. Wow. And to listen to him on the phone today and uh, just, you know, having a conversation, just catching up with him. And um, he's still doing well. Uh, health-wise, he's got a few issues, but of all the things that we've gone through together, and, uh, you know, he helped us fund a big um, truth convergence, a big convention that we had in Oklahoma City, and all of these guys stuck their neck out for us, and um, even before the film came out, it was unbelievable. So, yeah, there's just so so many good memories, and this this is where the good side of human nature comes out and you can see that you are truly blessed to be in the presence of these people and i'm not being you know uh traumatic or anything but this is there's a lot of good people out there and these, people, these people that care, care. That. yeah people that care absolutely absolutely so well let, let me just for the uh in the interest of time let me just ask you a couple of questions uh right like in a row here um what what did you make of the uh, original reporting of the the hole that was cre- supposedly created from the rider truck that kept like the reports kept mutating like on the size and the depth of this hole like what did you uncover anything uh, 
behind that whole debacle. I mean, I'm not even talking about the truck axle and, or any of that. I just mean the fact that right. they seemed like they kept covering up literally with boards, like the hole and the, the like all the measurements of it and everything. Well, one, one thing, that's a good question. Uh, it's funny you asked that about three months ago. I was uh, corresponding with uh, somebody that watched the film, a, a, a viewer, a fan uh, from Canada. And they asked me about that same thing. I said, well, one thing that we discovered, and especially from a couple of the guys that we knew that were on the um, uh, hired out with these bobcats and these uh, special uh, end loaders to come and clean up the debris, a lot of folks don't realize that the third of that building that literally launched and was displaced a good two to two and a half blocks north of where the Murrah building was, there were a lot of things going on concurrently when that explosion happened. Not only was the building collapsing, but it was it was blowing out as well as falling down. So your debris scattered. Nobody knows the, the true size of that crater. Why? Because it was filled up probably, if, if not a third, a little less than half with debris that was just flying everywhere. It was right. a, right. you know what, though. Um, so for the ATF to come in and say, well, it was this size or that size, they don't know what the hell. They're talking out the rear end. Right. And um, we, we did a couple of people from the, the Oklahoma County uh, bomb squad say the same thing. You know, they, they went up there and the compound issues. All right. So that's nine o'clock in the morning or nine oh two in the morning. By the time search and rescue and, the, you know, the first responders showed up within 10, 15 minutes um, and the ATF was there within 30 to 45 minutes. That hole was already, it was full. All right. So you, you fast forward to later that afternoon, about 4 to 4.30 in the afternoon, you got a tornado rolling through uh, southwest Oklahoma City Metroplex. The weather was so bad that they had to shut the airport down. Now, the FAA doesn't shut airports down unless things are really going sideways. Yeah. And um, then, the, of course, with the advance of a, of a uh, or tornado, obviously, is you've got this big swell of water, this this front. Well, that whole thing filled up with water. It was like a swimming pool. It was horrible. So, not yeah. only are you going to completely, you're just doing guesswork. You're, you know, you're basically talking out your rear end as far as, oh yeah, we know this for a fact. No, you don't. Because originally, because Chris, originally, wasn't it reported that it was uh, a small car? Then it, it transformed into uh, a, a little truck and then a van and then eventually the rider truck. Quick stop for gas. Next up, tailgate. I can't wait to start grilling all the stuff we just bought at Hannaford. Can't wait to fire up these teriyaki marinated steak tips. And this fresh salmon. Surfing turf. Hey, do you know if we earn rewards on their store brand meat and seafood? Great question, bro. We're ready to fill you up. Earn rewards on all Hannaford store brand meat and seafood. Yeah. Nice. It's simple to save with my Hannaford rewards. We are going to die out here. Someone will find us soon. We're lost, we're out of food and water, and our phones are dead. Well, I've got 5% left, but I'm saving it for wow days at BJ's Wholesale Club. Are you kidding me? No, it's their three-day event where you save up to 65% on appliances, tech, furniture, and outdoor products. But I should probably call for help. Wait, do they have air fryers? Save up to 65% during wow days at BJ's Wholesale Club July 10th through the 12th. Visit bjs.com slash wowdays for details. BJ's, absurdly simple savings. Correct. Now, that, that's all used is, is basically a red herring because we know for a fact, because of the 12, at least 12, if not 13 or 14 survivors of the building, uh, 
that came out and say, hey, that building was shaking five to eight seconds before the, the windows are blowing in. So yeah. we know that there was controlled uh, uh, ordinance in, on those. And where did we find out? Well, General Parton helped us reverse engineer all that. Um, and when we got the hold of the blueprints, that was gold. Then we could start literally saw where the, the pillars were and how they, they, they basically uh, numbered them off uh, by letters and number on a yeah. grid pattern. The building was about 70, 65 to 70 feet deep from front to back and about 85 to 90 feet wide from literally east to west from, uh, let's see here, it would have been from Robinson to Broadway. Um, yeah, so it, it, was, it was a good-sized building. Anyway, it was all grid pattern on how they laid out those, uh, the columns, and they were about almost three feet diameter. So these weren't small columns. You get a yardstick, and it's like, holy crap, that's a good-sized column, circular. And they had 18 two-and-three-quarter, two-and-three-eighths-inch rebar rods in there. So you're going to tell me that an air blast not only will sever the three-foot column, but uh, completely cut, if not bend, those uh, rebar columns that's embedded in that concrete. And I call BS on that. Obviously, that, that didn't uh, happen. It was the contact charges that melted those things they supercharged them and melted and they were bent like pretzel sticks yeah and uh six feet of one columns was turned into complete it was to chalk dust and it launched we found out a good portion of the top of that was sitting on the parking lot across the street from the murrah building well it doesn't happen when you have an air bass blowing into the the building so the justice department um you know and, and all of the entities that chose to cover this up uh, including um the third party that was hired to investigate it, which later helped cover up 9-11 in the World Trade Center. Absolutely. They, uh, they want us to believe yep. that, yeah, and all, all of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, well, well, uh, let, yeah, they're let me, treating us like Like we're idiots. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me just transition to the foreknowledge part of uh, Oklahoma City that we didn't actually get into the last time you were on, but the ATF, not at their office uh, that morning. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And plus, there was also there was well, a judge, a judge I I believe that was uh, given a phone call uh, pro- just prior to. Right, he had since. Um, I think he was in Portland by the time he was called out on the fact that he was given an advance call. I don't have his name at the at the tip of my tongue right now, but I, I remember reading that. But you so know who I'm talking about? Talk okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now, what we did find out that the Oklahoma County uh, Sheriff's Department and the bomb squad were working in tandem with the local police department uh, in the wee hours in the morning, I believe, from 2 a.m. They stood down at 6 a.m. They packed up all their duffel bags. They took the bomb squad uh, trucks, uh, you know, back off off of site. And uh, they even had a uh, roadblock to the west of um, for almost uh, four to five blocks to the west of where the mirror building stood to check for vehicles. They were anticipating something being driven to the front of the building that were going to blow out a few windows and and so forth. No, they had no idea what was about to to come down. Literally, uh, you know, the the roof of the temple was going to fall on their their heads. It was unbelievable. Um, So they they stood down at uh, between 6 and 6.30, packed up their stuff and walked away. All hell broke loose at two minutes after nine. And uh, so the foreknowledge that they knew something was going to happen and um, precautions were taken. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the kids and 168 people were killed 
and uh, Edie, Edie, Mother, Mother Edie Smith called them out on it too on CNN, I believe. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she was she was in shock, and uh, she let it fly on on live evening news that day, or the morning news, and uh, just called them out on their their BS. Uh, her husband, or, excuse me, Edie's uh, Edie's father, uh, dad, right? stepfather, or something. Yeah, uh, yes. Glenn, Glenn Wilburn would would be the catalyst. He was the predecessor to the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee. Um, he was taking uh, cassette recordings of uh, ear and eyewitnesses and um, family members that had questions about it. And um, I remember uh, he gave those to Charles Key, head of the Bombing Committee, who I texted earlier today. Uh, we just keep in touch once a week or so. And um, he said, Charles, uh, I need you to take care of these. This is when Glenn was diagnosed with uh, cancer and he could uh, barely breathe and sit up straight at the dining room table. And he says, I want you to take these recordings and I, I, I need you to look at this information as a state rep. Uh, Charles was the head of District 90 on the western side of Oklahoma City. A lot of his constituents were directly affected by the bombing. Uh, some of their friends and family were killed. So Glenn was was the lightning rod for I want to say at least a, a year, nine months to a year after the bombing, uh, then he had passed on. So and he, yeah, went, the, he went the, through a lot of th- threats too, right? During that time that he was sick? He, he, yes. Um, yes. And uh, now if understand that Glenn Wilburn was an accountant, this guy was precise with his numbers and his, his stats and his, he had to be, that's, that was ingrained in his DNA, so to speak. That's what he did for a living. You know, you don't do so many taxes, whether it be personal or corporate taxes, and just on the fly. you got to know what you're doing. you got to keep your, your thoughts right. straight, you know, your book straight. And that's exactly. exactly the way he approached this case. So I, I was very uh, fortunate to have met his wife, uh, uh, Kathy, uh, the widow, um, several times. And she's just an absolutely wonderful person. And uh, so the cemetery uh, where the kids are buried um, so, you know, I visited their graves many times, uh, not far from where, oddly enough, the son of A.P. Murrah, Judge Murrah, the son is buried like 20 feet away, uh, excuse me, 20 yards away from where the Wilburn kids are buried in the same cemetery. It's oh, just wow. a lot of weird coincidence, you know, where yeah. people relate to rest. Um, and we run into this stuff all the time as a film crew. It's like, wow. You know, wow. this is not by chance. There has to be something going on here. Anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but yeah, no, there well, was definitely foreknowledge. Yeah, foreknowledge. And then I also want to touch upon uh, Timothy McVeigh and uh, his curious arrest. Um, mm-hmm. Originally, it was claimed that he didn't have any firearms in the car. Am I off base by saying that? Originally, he only had a knife you on him. You know, I, I, I don't. Well, that's that's that. I believe the officer suspected that's uh, he he voluntarily said, "Look, I've, I've got a knife," and then he pulled out the pistol. I don't recall what caliber and make the pistol was, and he uh, voluntarily handed it over to the uh, the officer. Okay. You know, without because he don't want to cause any alarm or accidentally get shot. You right. know, uh, by okay. uh, mishap. So, <clears throat> okay, but also, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, sorry. No, I cut you off. Sorry. Sorry. Cool. Uh, no, yeah, no. Charlie Hanger. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he, he was, uh, yeah. It was. It was. It was his day off, and he was out of his precinct. And again, a lot of red flags. Like, which officer Hanger doing 
you know, I, I believe it was at least 65 to 70 miles outside of his precinct, going uh, pursuing McVeigh on, on Interstate uh, 35 North toward the Kansas border. It's Again, that didn't make any sense. It was a day off. Now, they may have obviously, uh, you know, had the ABP all, all hands on deck, so to speak. They have the officers pursue possible uh, suspects, but uh, it was it just, very odd it, for him to be that part of Oklahoma. It just had shades of the Oswald uh, situation to me when I yeah. was looking into it. And I recently went back and listened to the Hour of the Time episode that Bill Cooper used to do. Um, and he was just, he was describing, uh, the curious arrest of, uh, McVeigh. And so I did, I just want to see if you, to get your take on, on that situation because I, he also yeah. brought up, he also brought up the idea that the, um, the John Doe number one and two sketches originally were presented mm-hmm. as photographs. Wow. I, I was not aware of that. That would have been interesting. And of course they were on the original. Uh, indictment, uh, you know, and others are known, and all of a sudden they're, they're dropped. Um, yeah, so it's now there were there were two, um, according to Jermaine Johnston, who we were ready to interview, and she tactfully backed out about an hour and a half before our film crew were to show up at her front door. And th- and this is, you know, she did take this interview lightly. She was um, very uh, sincere and wanted to do it. And we're talking two, three months in advance, and then you know, confirm a week in advance, a few days. And then, you know, with that short amount of time before she says, look, I can't do this. Jermaine Johnson sees an individual fitting the description of McVeigh with another buddy of his in the yellow marquee, uh, pulling up to the, it would have been, it's now it's the AT&T building. It was Southwestern Bell telephone at the time about, I want to say six blocks Southeast of where the Murr building stood. And McVeigh's just leaning against the hood calmly um, with uh, wearing a, uh, a yellow windbreaker and these earplugs with the old blue plastic string, you know, holding the earplugs and the yellow uh, around his neck. She thought, well, that's odd. Why would he be wearing earplugs by, um, you know, driving a car? And uh, she comes out just in complete shock. Her hair is up full of concrete dust and whatnot, having walked away from the explosion. And sees McVeigh just leaning against the hood calmly, uh, looking toward the Murr building. And he asked her, calmly, he says, did you have any friends involved? And she says, yeah, a lot of them got killed. But she's in shock. She literally wondered, what the hell? You know, I just got my ass kicked. I came with an inch of my life. And why the hell is this guy asking me calmly if I had any friends killed? Well, in order for that McVeigh, who she saw, yeah. to be on the road with Charlie Hanger, how many, we're talking what? Night, over 90 miles north, uh, going at a uh, under the speed limit on the um, the interstate, uh, just less than a half hour south of the Oklahoma-Kansas border. We had a, a retired employee with the Oklahoma Department of Transportation help us out. And he says, no, that McVeigh would have had to be going at least, at least 110 miles an hour. With no, literally with, from no, with no license plate. <laughs> Exactly. And just to avoiding all the stoplights and, and from that section of uh, eastern Oklahoma City and then getting on the expressway to get on. It would have taken him at least 20 minutes to get to, uh, excuse me, about 10 minutes from the Murrah building to the interstate and then go consistently 110 miles an hour, which is like completely ludicrous. That that would have been impossible uh, so for that him did- to be where Charlie Hanger 
that just supports yeah. the uh, so, that, that just supports the theory that there were multiple McVeighs involved. Absolutely. So who the hell did Charlie Hanger stop? And who the hell was taken into custody, remanded by Charlie Hanger? Who did he turn over the authorities at the uh, Noble County Courthouse in Perry, Oklahoma? On his day off, right? So, exactly. So, who the hell was the McVeigh that Jermaine Johnson was talking to? And who the hell was the McVeigh that Charlie Hanger took into custody over 90 miles to the north, traveling up Interstate 35? This whole thing just falls on its face. It's, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, don't get me started. It's, it's, no, it's, I understand. Um, yeah, it's like the multiple Muhammad Adda and the, you know, multiple yes. Oswalds and everything. What did you make of uh, the uh, connection with Jolly, Dr. Jolyon West and his visits to McVeigh? Oh, the Jolyon West is the Prince of Darkness. There was an, he was an understudy, a, a protege to uh, uh, Ewan Cameron, who was absolutely dark with the mind control and uh, MK Ultra. Um, he was working in Canada, right? Dr. Dr. Cameron Correct. in Canada. He was working. Yes, he was uh, with a uh, working at a facility south of Montreal at the behest and the support of the Canadian counterparts of the CIA and, of course, the U.S. CIA, and God only knows what other dark agencies had their hands in that mess. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say Cameron was just as bad, if not worse, than uh, Mengele uh, with World War II. They, they gave him free license to do basically what the F he wanted to do. And the they looked the other way. Angel of it death. Yeah. Absolutely. And for... For, for uh, Jolly West to uh, to work with this guy, it's like, oh man, you know, you, you when Jolly and West shows up in town, you pack up your stuff and leave because somebody's going to die, you know, <laughs> like, whether right. directly or inadvertently. It's like, no, this, this guy is he, he's he's uh, he's Mister Death with the sickle in his in his hand, and he's he's going to be killing some people. So. He's got connections uh, yeah, it, to everything. It seems like you know uh, and, Jack Ruby of all people. His his understudy was in charge of um, a lot of the uh, torture that went on in Guantanamo Bay. So we're talking second generation from you and Cameron having intimate and direct uh, knowledge and, and uh, operational. Uh, uh, they went fully operational at Guantanamo Bay. It was horrible. So. The uh, the warden at the uh, the federal facility in El Reno, it was a federal penitentiary there, was uh, fired after he, uh, he he went ballistic after he found out that Doctor West was in um, the cell with Tim McVeigh, and there were uh, hypodermic needles found on McVeigh's food tray, and this warden says I didn't give anybody any permission to come into my prison and give my my prisoners unless it was uh, approved by you know the infirmary at the, at the prison. And um, he called uh, Jolly West and said, have this guy escorted out the property. Well, that didn't happen. What happens? The warden gets sent to a prison up in Alaska. With the Bureau of so the warden got so, screwed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's like getting sent to a submarine base. If you call out somebody in the Navy, they'll send you to a remote submarine base in Alaska. Well, this was the counterpart to the Bureau of Prisons. So, anyway. Um, but... Um, I guess can we pivot? Well, you and I wanted to talk about the the UFO thing real quick. I know this story just yeah, no, a sure, days yeah, ago. yeah, please. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it's a lot of folks. So, kind of, 
I'm kind of pigeonholed sometimes as just the Oklahoma City guy. And, uh, you know, there, there's good and bad to that. And that's fine. Um, and I, I, I take that as, as a compliment. But once again, I wasn't the only one working on this film. We had over 75 people. Some of it had passed on before the film was released that uh, were just absolutely amazing to help us with the, the Oklahoma City film. But over the course of since the film was released, I had a chance to work on some independent projects. Being a radio show host with Radio Free Oklahoma, we were on the air, I believe, for um, almost four and a half years. And um, one of the in- individuals that I was going to interview was a former mechanic on the USS Nimitz, and he also served on the security detail. So if you want to rewind, and let me give you a quick recap here. There, there's two instances here, I think, that really solidified my belief. Not only are UFOs and alien life real, and this is the reason why, and I'm skeptical, you know, early on. But once I saw the documentation and then the um, two different instances, at least, that um, codified the fact that this information was true. And when I saw the report come out yesterday, the article, I said, yeah, this is this is in line with what he do. So let's go back to. So we're talking 2007. All right. And this individual I I met through a full-time job that I had in Oklahoma City before the film came out. And he agreed to come on a radio show. So he was in the Navy. We're talking 1984. Ronald Reagan was still in office. Okay? Yeah. So he's on the USS Nimitz. There's, I believe, 5,200 people on this ship. They're doing touch-and-go exercise operations between 2 and 4 a.m. and pitch dark. The lights are out on the ship. And they have uh, the, the fighter jets basically touch and go with all the lights off. They're only doing this by, uh, what do they call that, um, uh, infrared um, sighting, okay? And um, all the tracking mechanisms, all the state-of-the-art bells and whistles, the, uh, the Nimitz had to track the planes and make sure they came in at the right velocity and speed and everything. All right, so... Uh, there were at least, he told me there were 14 planes in rotation, either taking off, flying around in the oval, doing the maneuvers, and, and then coming back to land on the plane, touch and go, and take off again. That's a lot of jets to keep track of, 14. And these, these things are going pretty fast. All of a sudden, he says, between that time frame, and they narrowed it down to, if I recall, he said it was between 3 and 3.15 in the morning um, before and it only lasted, he said, 28 seconds, the sighting of this vessel. So they're going out, and they, they're, um, the, the ships basically will sail into the wind to get that extra uplift for the, the planes to make it a lot easier to take off. You get extra wing lift, so forth. We are going to die out here. Someone will find us soon. We're lost, we're out of food and water, and our phones are dead. Well, I've got 5% left, but I'm saving it for wow days at BJ's Wholesale Club. Are you kidding me? No, it's their three-day event where you save up to 65% on appliances, tech, furniture, and outdoor products. But I should probably call for help. Wait, do they have air fryers? Save up to 65% during wow days at BJ's Wholesale Club July 10th through the 12th. Visit BJ's.com slash wow days for details. BJ's, absurdly simple savings. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So uh, this craft comes out 
of the ocean. They're, by the way, they're 200 miles off the coast of India, not far from Diego Garcia. And he told me, oh, yeah, there's a top secret U.S. military submarine base that's joint with the, uh, the, the British Navy and the U.S. Navy out in the middle of freaking nowhere in the Indian Ocean. Oh, wow. Not far from Diego Garcia. This is about 60 uh, nautical miles. And this craft comes out, whatever this was, out of the water, locks in on the, the same speed as the Nimitz, and it's literally 100 yards off of the right side. And I, I'm not up to speed if it's starboard or port. I think that would be port, if I'm not mistaken, um, on the right yeah. side of the, the ship as you're, you're sailing forward. And it locks in to the same speed, and literally it's, it's sailing at the same speed as the Nimitz. And he says, oh, yeah, the, the radar on the ship locked into this. And they said it was at least three times the size of the Nimitz. The Nimitz is huge. Wow. Now, can you imagine something three times that size? And he said no. that <laughs> there, was, there, was light, there was light emanating from the, the inside of this. There were no windows that they could see. But he said the displacement of the water on that, it was so much water as it was coming out, it looked like it was like coming out of a giant car wash. The water was just coming down in sheets like waterfall. They, right. It was so huge that the water really had to displace it. Anyway, the, the ship <clears throat> it went back to the computers afterwards. It locked in on this thing for uh, 23 seconds. And um, at that point, within the snap of a finger, it disappeared and was off into the night horizon. Um, and he said immediately when this thing came out of the water, his commanding officer over the earpiece says, drop your weapons, assume an, a, a, a neutral position. Well, what are they going to do with M16 and Burke guns against this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's they were carrying on to. There were, there were uh, he said, about 28 or 29 guys on the bridge, security detail. They had the top admirals and captains monitoring this touch-and-go operation. Anyway, so what happens? He said there's three things that happen. The admiral comes on and the captain. They get on the PA, and there's a shift. There's, there's people that are sound asleep. There's three shifts of rotation of, you know, whatever their duties are, whether you be the cooks, your mechanics, your pilots, everybody's getting their rest. Right. right. Woke everybody up, woke their ass up, got them up out of bed, got on the PA, and uh, said, all right, you, have, you are uh, under a gag order for seven years. You will not talk about this. Uh, even if you were sound asleep, you will not uh, spread any rumors about things that you may have heard or heard directly or indirectly. And if you uh, violate this uh, gag order, you will be court-martialed. Your pension will be, uh, you know, it, they will, they'll mess with you, and there's a good chance you're going to prison. Uh, number two, he ended up calling the White House. They said President Reagan had just got back from a trip from Beijing. He was taking a nap at the White House. <laughs> Local time in Washington, D.C. was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So these guys in the Indian Ocean in the middle of you know, the morning, the, the following day. Yeah. So we're looking at about a 12 to 13-hour difference. All right. And the president was debriefed for 10 minutes. And what happened? They hung up the phone to the president. And guess what? They get on the phone with MacDill Air Force Base, which is Central Command. Now, I'm not quite sure because they're out in the Indian Ocean. But for, for some reason, even though this is U.S. Central Command, MacDill Air Force Base here in, in Tampa, literally it's uh, 30 minutes from where I live on the, across the bay, was debriefed on what happened. Okay, so keep that in mind. So this is in 1984. Yeah. All right. He said he was really he was ready to basically just spill the beans and tell me what happened on on the radio show. He backed out an hour before because he said some of his buddies are still in the Navy. They were about ready to retire. He didn't want to get them in trouble because they were on the ship with him. And he says, if that 
you know, the blowback on that may have been severe. And he said, look, I don't even want to take a chance. This is, I totally understand. All right. So that's in 2007. I'm working on a project completely separate from Free Mind Films. I'm in uh, Roswell, New Mexico. This had been December, first week of December. We were on set for uh, 21 days, one day break. And this is, um, it was the Sunday before Christmas in 2016. I'm at the UFO Museum in Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, yeah, I've been Myself, there, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, this is, this is after hours. The place closed this Sunday at 6. The manager was gone. He had the assistant manager, and she also ran the gift shop. We were going to interview her about this particular film we were doing, and actually a very well-written film. Um, and it's also on, uh, it's called Astro. Um, it, it was released in 2018. Anyway, so myself, we got the uh, director of photography, and we had um, another guy that did our sound and lighting. So there's a three-man crew. and we're, we're separate from the principal crew that was doing the film. We are actually doing behind-the-scenes making of documentary of this feature film. And I thought, okay, we'll be in and out 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Well, this gal rolled out the red carpet for us. And um, I'm not going to name names, but uh, she gave us access to documents that we had to have special gloves to handle. And she was saying, oh, yeah, there, there was – get this now. We're talking top executives from oil companies, from uh, their subcontractors, from – Aramco from a lot of the different oil entities, um, both in the financial side, the equipment side, and the exploration and recovery side. Uh, the executives saw underwater UFOs in the North Sea as early as the, the 1930s and 1940s, all the way up through the 1980s. We oh, saw wow. written affidavits by the executives and their families and the attorneys and the kids and the estates and the executives of the estates. Dating. They attested that these, these guys saw this. And there was reference in at least one letter that I saw about some of this at the behest of the attorney of, of one of these, uh, the people that signed these affidavits to contact Tinker Air Force, or excuse me, um, McGill Air Force Base here in, in, in uh, Tampa. And I thought, son of a gun. Wow. I mean, what are the odds? So that here we are, what, uh, we're talking nine years difference between talking to the guy that was on the Nimitz and reading these letters that were written back, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. And um, Dad McDill, as the, basically, it's, it's we know uh, Wright Patterson, and that, that's one thing that I heard from this gal at the museum. This is, oh, yeah, Wright Pat was where they brought the, uh, the aliens and, and the, um, uh, what, the craft. That, they were actually... Um, three of them that crashed in the desert in, in the, uh, the the mesas in the desert outside of Roswell. Yeah, I had heard All of it was uh, two of them. There were three, huh? There was actually, they, they found parts of a third one. And uh, this is where Mother Nature was happening with these aliens. And, I, 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 you know, you have to, like, wow. Uh, even these guys couldn't deal with, with nature in, in the U.S. Uh, or in, in, the, in, the, in, in on Earth. They were actually uh, coming in at a high rate of speed. Um not anticipating doing a final approach under Roswell, obviously, they get struck by lightning. It was a massive lightning storm. Anybody that lives out in New Mexico, and I was there for nine months, almost a year, they get some horrendous lightning storms. And uh, it uh, completely fried the onboard uh, avionics and all of the electronics on this craft. And they, were, they were basically flying out of, falling out of the sky like a rock. Well, they hit the desert floor, skipped like a rock off of uh, water, and hit the mesa at over uh, 200 feet up in the air and then fell back down. That's how fast they were going. 
And a, a couple lot. of them did survive for a while. And that was made with the metal so, uh, that we were told that was unbendable, unburnable, and all that, right? Correct. With Jesse Marcel? It, these aren't even on the periodic table that you and I have studied in college and high school and chemistry yeah. class. These elements don't exist as we know them. So anyway, all of that debris and the remains of, you know, uh, whoever was navigating those crafts was taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Well, that would make sense. It dovetails perfectly with what this gentleman said yesterday. But to have to read in those letters what we saw at the museum, at least in and uh, to dovetail perfectly with that story of the gentleman from uh, 2007, I thought, okay, McDill is also, it's one of a repository for any sightings of, of UFOs. Um, but here's the interesting kick. After we were done shooting this interview, and it lasted probably two and a half hours between the interviewing and the touring of the, of the place. And here it is, 1030. It was freezing cold. Now, mind you, this is in the middle of December in, in New Mexico. It's pretty cold in the high desert there. Oh, yeah. Um, the three of us are sitting in the van looking at each other and wondering, what the hell was that? You know, it's like, what, what are the odds that you have a chance to, to be exposed to that and to see this information? And this gal literally says, hey, you know what? We she could tell we were serious about her work. We wanted yeah. to do a good job. She says, I don't normally show people this. But I, I, I need your listeners to understand for those that may may not want to believe this or choose not to believe it or whatever for a variety of reasons, we're not the only ones here. We haven't been for thousands of years. And for right. anybody, after they review this information, to think that we're the only ones here, no. Come on. you got, you got to close that page, open up another door, and, and blow your mind open and say, hey, this is a reality that exists. you got to come to terms with it. And, yeah. and just that's the way it exists. So. Hey, I'm open-minded. Um, I then, think there's something else out there. Yeah, yeah. definitely. One, one other thing, and I'm gonna, I know we're running short on time here. Let me give you the third instance that really, this is right after the Oklahoma City bombing. I met with a former uh, public information officer from Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where the unexploded ordinance from the Murrah building was taken at 2 o'clock in the morning after the bombing. So the bombing happens at 9.02 a.m. on a Wednesday go to 2 o'clock in the morning that Thursday, which would have been the 20th. And the C-21 Learjet was uh, basically retrofitted with special, if you can imagine, giant fishing coolers set up their aluminum and, and uh, full of dry ice to render these um, devices inert. Flown to Tinker Air Force, or, or, excuse me, to uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, Tinker's in Oklahoma City, from Tinker to Kirtland. On a Learjet, they made that trip in 42 minutes. Uh, that drive is eight hours. So these things were hauling the mail. Oh wow! And they got to, uh, yeah, they got to Kirtland, and um, oddly enough, Kirtland was designated under the uh, the pact between the Soviet Union and the U.S. for the disarmament treaty. That's where they they uh, dismantled all the nuclear warheads that the Russians and the U.S. agreed on in a facility a good four thousand feet under the surface. There's a subterranean facility uh, under Kirtland Air Force Base. That's exactly where the devices from the Oklahoma City bombing went. How did I know? Because this public information officer told me. He said he was on base when that happened. He ended up being a, um, a, a great um, feature uh, reported with the Albuquerque Journal, and we struck it off right away. He said, look, um, just don't mention my name, but he says, I'm going to give you access to information. And he told me about the aliens that were living in these facilities. It's an Adam and Eve facility under Kirtland Air Force Base. And he said they've been there for decades. So, um, 
Wow. There's, there's six different varieties of it. Yeah. And they, they, they live among us. And that, that's not sounding hokey. It's not some stupid sci-fi film. This is reality, people. Well, what uh, you were just about to say, there's six different species that are here? Yes. Yeah, six different varieties. And I also uh, spoke with a uh, consultant on the film that was in the U.S. Navy, and he said, oh, yeah. He, so that, that's even another layer on this film that I was on, separate from, there's nothing to do with our visit to the uh, UFO Museum. Yeah. But this gentleman was uh, with the U.S. Navy, and he was in special ops, and he says, oh, yeah, he, uh, he, he knew of these. Uh, they had special craft that they were developing with the U.S., which dovetailed perfectly with yesterday's story that – these alien craft will come in, but it's like gold. It's, this is priceless. I mean, what country wouldn't want to have possession of these things to get an upper hand on their, their adversary as far as technology? You know, it's, this, it's, it's a game of cat and mouse so many different levels. Well, this this reminds me of the Bob Lazar story with Area 51 and everything, with how there were all kinds of different craft that people were trying to reverse engineer besides the one that he was assigned right. to. Yeah. And the, the Nazis did it. They that's with the Foo Fighters. I don't know why the band chose that name, but that they. Well, well I know why. Dave Grohl was obsessed with uh, UFOs, so he loved that that name. <laughs> there, you, there you go. And then the Nazis, boy, I tell you what, they would have kicked our ass. They were six months away from Jesus. I mean, can you imagine the turn of history if, if they would have uh, been able to? They had a lot of sabotage going on between British and U.S. intelligence to get in there and really f that up. Yeah. I can't even imagine where we would right now if that if they were able to greenlight that stuff on a massive scale. Well, I think so, that's what the UFO, uh, uh, the great uh, flying saucer invasion of the, the 1940s and 50s was all out of the Operation Paperclip after recovering the flying discs right. that the Germans are working on. Even the Nazi bell, the, if you get the how do you pronounce it, but the the Glock or whatever um, came right out of the, the, uh, the Antichrist. Yes. Well, there was, yeah. um, so you have, um, what was the uh, Joint Naval Air Station uh, outside of Fort Worth? I forgot. Uh, uh, anyway, they yeah. were in coordination with Tanker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. There was a massive uh, UFO over, just approaching the Dallas-Fort Worth area. This should have been about 20 years ago. It was a triangular, about uh, four times the size of a, uh, a U.S. football field. And um, it, was, it was at about, uh, they said about twenty eight to 30,000 feet in uh, fog so from the ground you couldn't see it but they were tracking this on radar planes were actually uh, scrambled from um carswell air force base and, and outside of on the west side of fort worth texas and ticker air force base in oklahoma city and and the planes got up there they were racing toward this thing and they were told to come back he says don't even get anywhere near this thing you do not want to assume a an offensive uh, position on this and <laughs> yeah. they had to they, they, they had to stand down and these pilots were pissed so it sounds yeah, like the one I saw, the black, the black triangle in 1998. It was about a year after the Phoenix lights uh, debacle. Yeah, exactly. It was on on a regular basis. So, you know, I, I thought, OK, I'm, I'm confirmed on uh, three different ways here between the PIO officer, the, the mechanic and the uh, member of the security detail in the Nimitz. And then uh, seeing what I saw in the, in the museum archives, I thought, yeah, there, there's 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 no no denying this. Oh, and then the guy on the set that was actually, uh, by the way, he said, these guys, some of these aliens could breathe underwater. It's just that they, they were able to uh, do the, um, the transfer of oxygen from the water molecules to their lungs without just seamless. And they were coming out of these submarines and 
these crafts that uh, had no, you know, sealed chambers. They were just riding around in them with, with open, in the open water. It was unbelievable. Well, there are a lot of uh, UFOs exists. that come out of the water that people don't realize. USOs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, the, the guy on the Nimitz, I asked him, I says, why, why would it be in that? And he says, well, you know, he talked to some other experts after that. And he says, there are a lot of thermal, um, uh, these, these tall towers that were actually from uh, ancient volcanoes under the sea. And he said that they'll, they'll go in and they'll just mine literally the liquid magma from the center of the earth, which is just replete in so many precious metals and energy. Can you imagine being able to haul off the liquid magma on a vessel this size, take off and take it to wherever you need to go back. You're, you're literally, you're at the pulse and the life of the earth, the formation of the planet earth. If yeah. you can do that. And there's a so, lot of UFOs. That are seen, there's lots of UFOs that are seen coming out of volcanoes. that are not even underwater either too. Exactly. So there again, it's consistent with what this guy saw. Um, and you know what? I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even studying UFOs. It's just you stumble across this stuff, and it's like, well, wait a minute. This stuff tells perfectly what I heard how many years ago. And then, boom, something happens how many years later. So, now, is anyway, that so, we, we got off it. No, no. The, I, hey, I'm, fa- I'm endlessly fascinated by uh, the UFO phenomenon, uh, too. So, is that something that you would like to revisit with a, uh, a future Freemind Films documentary? You know, there, there's been so much good work out there now. Um, I honestly, I we've got other stuff in the slate. I, I can't talk about it now. We've got a non-disclosure agreement, but oh, okay. I, it, it okay. would take me probably five or six years. But there's there's so many other good films. The um, Disclosure Project and the gentleman. I saw an interview with him. Uh, Are you talking about Stephen Greer? Great job on it. Yes, yes. Oh, there's no way in hell I would even want to to even step up that's like a, a mickey willis type type of quality yeah. stuff there you know it's yeah. uh it, it's just a whole that's a whole different level and uh i'm not denigrating the work we've done that's a different level that i there's no way it's like me trying to, to redo 9-11 after the guys of loose change came out with their their series of four films right. let that be let that be a repository information and you know study what mr greer did oh, my yeah. god um he put his life on the line and his family and how many of his friends Leftovers Or The DMV Or House cleaning Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun Play over a hundred different games online For free from anywhere You could redeem some serious prizes ChumbaCasino.com Live the Chumba life no purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, yeah, he's know, got quite the story. So. Oh, yeah, for like a long time, Dr. Stephen Greer. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, oh. just in closing, um, I, I want to have you come back many, many more times because uh, I just love talking to you. Um, but are there any – I know that you said you have – the Free Mind Films has some uh, some stuff coming up on the slate that you can't talk about. But are there any dream projects – uh, I asked Mary Ellen Moore last time, and her she had an idea about a Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King documentary. Do you have any dream yeah. projects? Yes, that that is, that is one that we had talked about several times because uh, 
former, uh, I believe it was U.S. Representative Cynthia McKinney, offered to give us full and unfettered access to a repository of information that she had um, that worked with the King Foundation and the King family about his oh, passing. Wow. And uh, I was very honored to um, cross paths with um, William Pepper, their uh, attorney of record, um, Caucasian attorney, that he was with Dr. King when they were doing the, the marches on Selma, and he bailed Dr. King out of jail over the years. Um, oh, wow. And uh, he, got to talk, he got to talk to the nurses at the hospital in uh, Memphis, and um, I believe it was, was it Memphis? Uh, yeah, where he was uh, shot, and uh, the... Uh, I think, yeah, what was it? I think it was Alabama, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Uh, uh, it, it was shot in Tennessee. I believe it was in, uh, from the, yeah, Men- in, Men- uh, I should know this after all so, these years, but. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's, uh, um, Attorney Pepper is, um, he's in his, I believe his late 80s now. Uh, he's uh, certified as a, uh, uh, licensed as an attorney, a barrister in London, as well as in uh, Brooklyn. And um, so he's still practicing, but there was a studio out of London that had the rights to a film uh, based on loosely based on the manuscript from his first two books. He's since come out with a third book and uh, I have all three and I've been in touch with him off and on to get the screenplay, but he was under contractual obligation of the, the, of the studio. So we had to stay arms like the way I did not want to muddy the waters for that. Right. But that would be a phenomenal story there. Um, yeah. So yeah, that and, there's, uh, you know, some uh, information uh, work that I'd like to do on some of the POW history that goes way back um, before the uh, toward the late 1800s. It's just it's, it's amazing what happened to these individuals. Oh, Their families wow. need to know. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there's some others I can't talk about right now. But oddly enough, I was on the phone with our film agent um, about 45 minutes ago talking about some of these projects and. Our distributor were very flattered. If you, by the way, log on to our website if you don't mind. I'll give a quick. Plug. Yeah, no. I was, yeah, in closing, I want I want you to be able to tell people how they can actually uh, view the films okay. uh, that will actually yes. support you guys. So, I'm, yeah, please do. Okay, so you can watch our films for yeah, watch our films for free versus the uh, pirated copies on YouTube. Just go to freemindfilms.com. We make our money on the ad revenue. And just as a, and we're not tooting our horn here, but it was just very flattered to uh, say that our distributor, who's been in the industry for over 28 years, loves our work. He wants us to turn more out. And they uh, just got the, the report on how things are going, and they're just we're we're still doing very well. Uh, how many years later? Um, and I, I one other plug, and I want to thank um, Scooter Downey, uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, producer, is a big fan of ours. I didn't find this out till last December. And I was just in awe. I thought, wow. So you never know who watches your work. And that's why that's why I wanted to turn the tables and compliment Mickey Willis and his crew for what they did. Oh yeah. Uh, They knocked it out of the park. So So folks, just to be able to support Free Mind Films uh, once again, you go to freemindfilms.com and you can watch um, A Noble Lie and you can watch State of Mind and Shadow Ring uh, for free. But it'll be in a way that'll support the uh, filmmakers and the company so that they can continue, you know, putting out great content. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you bringing me on. And, uh, and uh, is there back anytime? Oh, I would love to have you back many, many more times. Um, is there a, a a, is there a best way for people to contact you if you want to be contacted? That is. 
Yes. Uh, and my email address, um, I'm not going to hand out the phone number. It'll <laughs> you start blowing up on my phone. No, I understand. So, I understand. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, C.C. Emery. That's C.C.E.M. as in Michael, E-R-Y, at Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N, mail.com. If you want to email me and have any questions or comments or suggestions, we're open to constructive criticism too. By all means, we're you know we 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 learn, so uh, it's it's a two way street here. We love to hear from our viewers and our fans. And that's great. And that's freemindfilms.com. And uh, this is the great Chris Emery, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again, sir. Chris Graves, thank you, and keep up the great work. You always do awesome, and uh, thanks to your producer too. Yeah, that, Mr. Rochelli. I don't know what I'd do without him. All right. Take care, everyone. God bless you guys.